Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Um, so I want to say good morning to the New York section, all our friends that are joining us from all over the United States and the world, really. Um, we have an exciting morning planned for all of you pertaining to topics in sexual medicine. We have three speakers with us and we're kicking it off at the seven o'clock hour with Dr. Um, Robert Valenzuela. Dr. Valenzuela um, attended medical school at Mount Sinai and then completed his residency at, at Beth Israel Hospital. He then worked at Columbia for 18 years. We were just discussing and I have um, so many fond memories of working with him as a resident, taught me so much. Um, and he's currently the director of penile prosthesis surgery at Mount Sinai School of Medicine um, within the Department of Urology. He's definitely one of the highest volume surgeons for penile prosthesis surgery in New York City. And we're, we're really delighted to have you join us this morning, Dr. Valenzuela, to discuss penile prosthesis uh, infection, uh, how to prevent this and how to manage it. So good morning. Good morning, Gina. And good morning to all. Thank you so much for having me. I think it's this is a great opportunity. This is a topic nobody really wants to talk about, but it's the reality and we must all face it because if you operate, you can't have any complications if you don't operate. That's just the way it goes. And infections is one of these things, no matter how much we try to correct for it, there's always something that can happen. So we're gonna kick it off with a little bit of, uh, so these are my conflict of interest. Um, so I'm gonna talk about each of these topics, a little bit about the pathogens, risk factors, surgical planning, treatment of prosthesis infections, and we're gonna conclude in what the recommendations are. Uh, keep in mind, based on the amount of time, I had to trim this down significantly. Uh, this can be a really long talk because there's so much to talk about and so much work has been done, but still more to be done. So while some may not agree, penile prosthesis is the only cure for erectile dysfunction refractory to medical management. In the U.S., more than 25,000 IPPs are performed manually and inflatables make up the majority of these implants. These patients report very high satisfaction rates and we are fully aware of that. But despite improved device durability, advancement in surgical technique, antibiotic covered processes and guidelines in pre-op antibiotic prophylaxis, infections continue to occur. Now this is a nice little table that talks about the strategies for reducing primary infection. Given the risk of for infection at the time of IPP placement, surgeons performing this procedure should have a comprehensive plan for infection prevention in the preoperative period in the, or in the perioperative period. And interventions can be divided into the following phases. You have pre-op, intra-op, and post-operative. And some of these strategies are very obvious, but some of them are things that we, we really never think about. And we'll talk about some of them as we go along. One of the things that people don't usually think about is about nasal swab and treatment for staph aureus. And it's one of the things that's come up before. Now, uh, implant infection is a devastating complication of penile implant surgery. They remain challenging despite advancement in surgical techniques. 
compared with a 1.8% risk of infection in virgin IPPs. Studies have found that approximately 6 to 20% of risk of infection after revision surgery for uninfected malfunctioning prostheses and as high as 21% risk of infection if a penile reconstructive procedure was involved. And the only significant difference between the groups was the mean operative time. The length of the operation was thought to have played a role in infection. That means the more you do for the patient at the time of surgery, the more time you spend doing these procedures, the more likely or the higher the risk of infection. Now, these are some of the obvious known risk factors, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about these because we all know that we must correct for all of these. Urinary tract infections, you should treat that. You should always have a urinary culture prior to the procedure or prior, prior to the data procedure. I do that in my office. I do my pre-op labs one week before, so I have this on hand. Infection elsewhere in the body, and that's something that you should look at not only on the day you examine the patient, but also on the day of surgery. If you find anything in holding area or that you, they complain of anything, take it seriously and don't just dismiss it. And late hematogenous spreads from other sites. Now, some of the more controversial factors, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this, uh, such as diabetes has been proposed as a risk factor for IPP infection. Serum hemoglobin A1C and blood sugar at the time of surgery are the two ones that are concerned. But hemoglobin A1C is currently the best available marker for long-term control. It's commonly used in current studies and has been shown to be related to the incidence of various uh, related complications. In the recently published prospective uh, registry of outcomes for penile prosthesis, it is the proper study, uh, including men from 11 medical centers in North America, was shown that 20% of men undergoing penile prosthesis surgery were, were diabetics. Now, this study from 2017 aimed to determine if the risk of infection appears to be directly related to elevated hemoglobin A1C. What they did was uh, they looked at 902 penile implant procedures. The mean patient age was 56 years old. The mean hemoglobin A1C was 8, and with an 81% of men having a hemoglobin A1C of greater than 6. The procedures were performed by 16 different surgeons at eight different medical facilities. In all, 91.6% of the procedures were performed by high-volume surgeons. Again, this is one of the things that we'll talk about also, uh, the high-volume surgeon, and, and if that can make a difference. And all redo surgeries only accounted for 2% of the uh, implants. The study population consisted of 674 diabetic patients with 550 with poor glycemic control. And you can see on this graph what the glycemic level was at the time of surgery. And you can see that uh, over 500 of them had poor glycemic control. Now, what they did was to find the ideal hemoglobin A1C threshold point, they constructed a receiver operating characteristic curve or an ROC and found that the use of serum hemoglobin A1C threshold level of 8.5 represented a threshold level with a sensitivity of 80% and a specificity of 65%. Uh, this is an important number because a lot of surgeons use, use that number to determine whether they're going to do the case or not. Statistically, the point marker with the blue star is the ideal point to use as a threshold value for hemoglobin A1C variable. Although statistically threshold serum of 8.5 was reasonable, 
they looked at their results a little bit closer and found that the infection rate was as low as 1.3 to 1.5% when the hemoglobin A1C was less than 7.5, but rose sharply to 6.5 if the hemoglobin A1C was between 7.5 and 8.5, and 14.7% if it was 8.6 to 9.5, and as high as 22% when the hemoglobin A1C level was greater than 9.5. So now putting all this information together, what they felt was we cannot allow for this level of infection. So statistically, they felt that the hemoglobin A1C threshold point, the ideal one would be 7.5. You can see here in the red star. Now that sounds great, right? But the problem is that using a 7.5 threshold, what would happen is you would raise the sensitivity to 94% but a very low specificity of only 44%. This would mean that, yeah, you, you have lower risk of infection, but you really block out a lot of our patients. And those of, us, those of us who do a lot of implants quickly realize that sometimes the patients just can't get there. In my OR, I'm not that selective. In the past, I really never looked at hemoglobin A1C. I looked more at the sugar at the time of the surgery. But lately, I've been incorporating it because there's been more talk about it. There's more, been more articles about it. So now I feel between 8.5 and 9 to me is acceptable. I've done cases as high as 10 in recent days, not recently, but prior to the, <laughs> prior to the pandemic. But um, so I'm not as selective. And I think it's also the, the way that my OR is set up and a dedicated team and all these other factors that we'll talk about. What about immunosuppression? The available literature on infection rates among medically immunosuppressed patients is limited, but Wilson and Delk looked uh, retrospectively at over 1,300 patients and found that 50% of patients with penile prosthesis on immunosuppressive therapy for chronic medical conditions develop implant infections. That's really high, so you gotta be really careful with those patients. The good news is, that patients that were immunosuppressed and had a history of solid organs had a lower level of infection. And in their case, none of their patients had infection. Now, Quellar and Sklar, and Sklar demonstrated similar findings regarding their transplant patients, and they looked at 46 patients who underwent penile implant after a solid organ transplant with a mean follow-up of two years. In this series, the incidence of infection was no different for patients without organ transplant. So based on these limited studies, um, you know, it is still reasonable to consider uh, transplant recipients uh, as a potentially good candidate for penile implant. Uh, while the, the data doesn't, is not powered sufficiently to tell you that they're not going to get infection, uh, what we're seeing is that they're not at any greater risk. What about spinal cord injuries? I mean, patients these patients are always at increased risk for any kind of procedure. And that's because of risk of UTI, CIC, decreased tissue perfusion, loss of sensation. They may lead to delayed diagnosis of early infection or impending erosion. Some of the studies I've looked at, you can see Zerman and Wilson's uh, uh, studies found that patients uh, with uh, spinal cord injury can have a, an infection rate as high as 5.9%. Now, Jarrow specifically looked at this series at a series uh, of 24 patients, and he and he found no significant increase of infection. In fact, he found no infection in this group of patients. But again, 
like patients, like doctor physicians do high uh, volume of implants, he attributes this to strict requirements for negative preoperative urine cultures and also uh, uh, attention to detail. So the bottom line is that this population may, may best be served by increased vigilance on the part of both the patient and the surgeon for any breaks in skin integrity, adherence to negative urine cultures before surgery, and optimization of bladder management. Now, I, I included this table because it's a great table. It really summarizes the potential measures that can be taken to reduce infection risks in specific patient groups based on limited number of studies available. There's a need of larger prospective studies in each of these areas. But if you look over here, you look at some of these things, like I said, diabetes, you have consider hemoglobin A1C, preoperative serum glucose, is what I usually look at more importantly to me, if their glucose is greater than 200, uh, I'm more likely to cancel the case. Antifungal perioperative prophylaxis for some of the patients, I don't do that regularly. I know some of the guys do this on a regular basis but I don't see a great deal of candida infections. In fact, I think I see maybe one or two candida infections and we always look for that in my patients, which means I always get an uh, intraoperative culture for any of my patients that have any kind of, uh, any kind of uh, revision surgery or exchange. What about the type of pathogen? The type of pathogens infecting the implants has changed recently from gram-positive to gram-negative bacteria and fungus. Uh, to protect against infection, AMS introduced the pre-coated prosthesis and coloplasts developed a hydrophilic coating uh, for their prosthesis. And we'll talk about this, uh, uh, each one of them and how they affect us. So first is the biofilm. The implanted prosthetic devices are at risk for infection because they provide a platform to, for the development of a bacterial biofilm. This is an organized bacterial colony that grows on the surface of the implant. Bacteria attaches to the surface, uh, usually by charge attraction, hydrophilic and hydrophobic interactions, and by specific attachment of fimbrae. Now, growth and colonization and maturation follows the attachment. The mature biofilm is composed of three layers a linking uh, layer or linking biofilm. The base is made up of compact layer of bacteria and the surface film from which free floating bacteria or planktonic bacteria can arise and spread. Bacteria deep within the biofilm matrix live in a protected environment and diffusion of antibiotic is difficult. This is due to low oxygen tension leads to a lower bacterial metabolic rate, rendering the bacteria fully resistant to high levels of antibiotic. How to get rid of that? You can't. The only way you can get rid of that is getting rid of the implant. Effective strategies to, produce, uh, to reduce infections rely on prevention of biofilm formation through surface modification. And that's what coloplast and AMS or Boston Scientific have done. So to that end, the antibiotic-coated medical devices such as uh, central venous uh, and bladder catheters have proven effective in reducing bacterial colonization and biofilm formation. This leads to a decreased rate of infection. In 2001, AMS released its AMS 700 series penile prosthesis. We all know it very well because of the orange color on it. This uh, prosthesis is coated with uh, what's called inhibizone, which is a combination of rifampin and minocycline. Uh, since then, multiple studies have found that this device significantly reduces infection rates in uh, men receiving penile prosthesis. 
Now, not until, well, I guess in 2009, the FDA approved AMS uh, 700 with inhibizone as the only inflatable penile prosthesis shown to uh, clinically shown clinical evidence uh, to reduce uh, the rate of provision surgery due to infection. This coating uh, called inhibizone consists of a combination of profanfib, monocycline, and it's really a proprietary manufacturing process that impregnates the antibiotics onto all prosthetic surfaces. They have not been able to do that to the rear tip. So we're still implanting a piece of the implant without any coating, which is still a bit of a concern. Now the prosthesis itself is made up of three separate layers and you can see what they are here. Uh, but the outer layer is uh, with inhibizone is a silicone elastomer layer and this eludes the antibiotics um, slowly. So the combination uh, in vitro, these antibiotics were shown to inhibit staph, including culture from vascular catheters that were uh, collected from patients with confirmed catheter-induced septicemia uh, or any other, uh, other kinds of infection. And further in vitro studies demonstrated that the coding segments of the catheter with rifampin and, and minocycline were superior to using vancomycin and inhibiting staph species and enterococcus. It was also found to be more effective than cetazidine against gram-negative or pseudomonas and against uh, uh, amphotericin B against candida, they have not looked at, they didn't look at that, but it was found that it was great for that as well, that you can code it with uh, amphotericin B. Now, this is how the, the antibiotic is released. It eludes initially at high rates within the first day of the rifampin, and minocycline eludes uh, after seven days. You can see that most of the antibiotic is gone. Uh, Keep in mind the concentration of antibiotics you use are very much lower, and you can see what these doses are on the um, on the 24 centimeter prosthesis are very much much lower than blood levels uh, when we give it systemically. Keep in mind this is very important. The presence of antibiotic coating cannot be used in patients documented allergy to either rifampin or tetracycline, and it's contraindicated with patients with systemic lupus erythematosus. Uh, rifampin and minocycline have been shown to induce SLE-like clinical features uh, in some of these patients, and it causes a drug-induced lupus phenomenon in patients with genetically susceptible individuals. The Titan penile prosthesis, originally mentor, coated with polyvinyl pyrrolidine, is a, hydropho a hydrophilic substance that reduces bacteria adherence and absorbs and eludes antibiotics. The device is immersed intraoperatively with the surgeon's uh, uh, desired antibiotic mix or cocktail. It was first introduced in 2002. The one year follow-up after its introduction was, uh, uh, was um, presented by Dr. Hellstrom out of Tulane University. And what you can see here, he looked at over 2,000 mentor uh, Titan hydrophilic coated implants between two, uh, September and, and August of 2002 and 2003. And these were compared to the 482 alpha-1 prosthesis, which were non-coded. And the infection rate for the Titan group was only 1% compared, as compared to 2% in the non-coded uh, prosthesis. In table two and three, the individual infections and the cultures uh, data are presented as well as duration of implant. 
And you can see some of these implants had a significant lifespan. Here, you have 105 days. These are very short, three to five, to, three to four months for the most part. Uh, staph species predominate in both groups. Seven of the Titan clinical infections had negative cultures, and one culture was positive for Canada, which I don't think we saw any in the uh, non-coded group. A they, con they concluded that theoretical reduction of bacterial adhesions conferred by the hydrophilic PVP surface and the ability to choose which antibiotic the device is immersed intraoperatively gives the implanting surgeon a distinct advantage with this product. The other thing is that balls, all, uh, all segments of the prosthesis are coded, including the rear tips. Now, what about prophylaxis antibiotic? This multi-institutional study was to investigate uh, penile prosthesis infection microbiology and to consider which changes in practice could decrease infection rate. They also evaluated current prophylaxis guidelines in order to develop and propose an algorithm for infections. The authors reviewed intraoperative uh, cultures obtained at the time of implant explantation or any Mulcahy salvage uh, uh, prosthesis case from 25 different centers and cultures were obtained from purulent material in the implant space for, and from the biofilms. They obtained 227 intraoperative cultures at salvage, 38 of the 153 cultures, 25% grew multi, uh, mul multiple organisms and gram positive organisms were found in 73 and and uh, gram-negative in 39% of the positive cultures. Uh, you can see that some of these cases also had significant candida, 11.1%. 11 11 now, what they, went, what they did was they went back and looked at the intraoperative antibiotic regimen for all these patients and found that in general, most surgeons used antibiotics consistent with AUA or EUA guidelines. 22% received cephalosporins and aminoglycosides, and 56% received vancomycin and aminoglycosides. But look at the variety and the type of antibiotics that they use intra-op. They really had a significant variability in what uh, the, the surgeons used. Now, if you look at the list of bacteria and, and, and fungi found in 153 positive cultures and frequency, Note the Canada species again was 11.1% and MRSA is 11.1%. Okay. Now this table demonstrates the efficacy of the AUA and EUA antibiotic guidelines in the organisms uh, isolated in this study. Okay. Now the results did not consider bacterial resistance. Okay. The AUA recommended uh, Astrionam. Uh, in patients with renal compromise and an aminoglycoside in combination with a first or second generation cephalosporin or vancomycin. In our institution, we generally use vanco and gent on all of our patients. The combination of aminoglycoside and estrionam uh, showed the greatest efficacy, eliminating 86% of the microbes found in the culture in the series. However, this combination only had 25% anaerobic coverage and lack fungal coverage. In fact, both of them lack fungal coverage. <clears throat> now, the EUA suggests a second or third generation cephalosporin or a penicillin agent with 
penicillinase uh, efficacy. Uh, ampicillin sublactam was the most effective single anti-agent uh, in the AUA guidelines and eliminated 72% of the culture of microbes in this series. The anaerobic coverage was excellent. 100% of these patients were covered. Okay, you can see that over here, but they sacrificed gram positive and gram negative coverage. And like the AUA recommendations, did not cover Canada. This study documented a high incidence of infections with anaerobic bacteria, uh, Canada species, and MRSA. Approximately one third of IPPs had negative cultures and 25% positive cultures. Uh, so, while antibiotic regimens and initial implantations were generally consistent with the guidelines, the microorganisms identified in the studies were not covered by the AUA or EUA antibiotic guidelines in at least 14 to 38 percent of the cases. Uh, this suggests that there needs to be a broadened antibiotic prophylaxis from current guidelines, and maybe you should consider using your biograms from your regional institution as opposed to just sticking to specifically what, what the guidelines are or adding them to your mix. You know, another thing that also has been shown to come in handy is a checklist. So if you look at checklist, uh, this group looked at uh, reported initial infection rate of 2.9%, followed by an outbreak period during which an IPB infection rate climbed to 54%. They had tons of infection in a short period of time. As a result, they implemented uh, this checklist and they, over the next two years, they had no infection. Um, while this is great, the, the criticism was that it was a mix of data-driven and non-empiric items on the checklist, but you know, the, the list still remains a very good tool with demonstrable results in reducing IPP infections. Now we're ready to operate. Now I'm gonna move very quickly because I'm running out of time. And I'm gonna spend a little bit of time just on the shaving versus the clippers because you know we always run into this in the operating room. They don't wanna give us a, a razor. But in fact, there was a study that was done looking at this and they looked at 215 consecutive patients and they were randomized to clipper or razor. Naturally, they found by giving uh, by taking images and, and giving it to different people, the doctors, the nurses, and they decided to see which one had the most trauma. What they found is overall preoperative hair removal on the male genitalia using a razor resulted in significantly less trauma and more complete hair removal. Surgical side infections really did not make the difference. They were identified in four patients during, during the follow-up, two clippers and two razors. The bottom line is, you know, use what's comfortable. In my OR, we use a clipper, but we really have reduced the amount of hair that we remove. We're no longer so hung up on getting complete depilation. We really wanna, we, we work more around the incision and not bother taking all the hair. What about chlorhexidine and, uh, and chlorhexidine versus uh, uh, providone iodine? Uh, what they found with regards to the skin preparation, the use of chlorhexidine alcohol compared to uh, iodine with surgical side infection rates of 9.5 and 16.1% respectively. Now, chlorhexidine has a rapid onset, okay, causes disruption of the protein and cell membranes. It has antimicrobial persistence up to 48 hours. The iodine solution, uh, it, 
it, it works by damaging proteins and DNA via free radical free iodine uh, that is released from solution after, after approximately two minutes in the dry surface. Now, where does 10 minutes come from? We do this 10 minute wash, but in fact, it's supposed to be a two step process. It typically takes about 10 minutes. What you do is you wash the patient, then you go ahead and paint the patient and you have to wait for, uh, for it to completely dry. That, totally, that takes about 10 minutes, but we were taught originally to go ahead and scrub for 10 minutes, then we prep, then we wait for it to dry. It's very time consuming and it has about found to be superior, superior to uh, chlorhexidine. So skin preparation solution have been examined, patients undergoing GU implants and positive cultures, skin cultures after the prep and patients with, uh, uh, they found 32% of patients prep with prepidone iodine, they still have bacteria on the skin. Uh, now, another thing to consider is looking at team preparation, uh, intraoperative uh, team care, team composition, if you have a dedicated team. Now, Gerard Henry demonstrated 14% infection rate among IPPs placed by different, by different surgeons in a large multi-specialty group compared to his rates of 0% infection for a single surgeon. He attributed his lower infection rate to decreased operative time. Uh, keep in mind, uh, this is very limited. That is a single surgery center and the surgeon individual that is not generalized to other providers. But the bottom line is if you have a dedicated team, it is a lot better. Everybody knows their position and really takes the case very seriously. Uh, the no touch technique introduced by Dr. Francois Eid has also made a huge difference in terms of reducing infection rates. We'll go through this very quickly. What he does is he coats the undersurface and just the penis is exposed. Once he creates the opening, he puts another covering and then go ahead and implants the prosthesis through that space with minimal contact. Uh, and the good thing about this technique is that it can be modified. You can see what his, his infection rates are. They're very low. He claims at about 0.46 uh, infection rate for all his cases. And this can be modified to the patient's preference. And you can go ahead and use any permutation of this to minimize contact. And I think that's important. And, and we do practice some of this in, in some of our cases. What about the mummy wrap? This is another thing that we talk about. The mummy wrap has been recommended and this may aid in hemostasis, but also has been shown to be associated with decreased odds of, of infection. But you know, the potential mechanism may be that it really decreases hematoma, which can be a nutrient source for bacteria. Uh, also by the use of a JP, you can reduce hematoma. Uh, tight corporotomy closure is important, device post-operative inflation, surgical drain, all these things are very important in order to reduce the hematoma and also reduce uh, the risk of infection. But you can see this is one of my cases and you can see to what extent we do hair removal. We're not very aggressive at all. We, we still leave a lot of hair behind. And that hasn't changed anything in, a, in my patient population. Okay, so ambiguity exists regarding the need for induration for post-operative antibiotics. So 
you know, in a study that was done, 89% of uh, physicians prescribe postoperative antibiotics, but there's no evidence to guide this practice. The recommendations for overall surgical care indicates that antibiotics should be discontinued within 24 hours of the procedure. I think it just helps us sleep better at night knowing that there are antibiotics. I keep my patients on antibiotics until the day after I remove the JP. So all my patients go home with the JP in place. They come back to the office two to three days later, and then we, we take out the JP. Their antibiotics usually end the next day, so four to five days. Uh, <clears throat> so, But the optimal protocol for postoperative antibiotic remains unclear, and I think there are very few surgeons who are willing to uh, send out their patients without postoperative antibiotics. I think Dr. Ede was doing that for a while. I know he doesn't use any, any antibiotic in his irrigation, and I believe he was also looking at not using any antibiotics. So the bottom line is that IPP is a safe and effective treatment for uh, medically refractory VD, and many gains have been made in our understanding of infection prevention over the four decades. Salvage is a viable option for infected IPP, and future work needs to be done. But you know, if you get an infection, the bottom line is the best thing is to try to do a washout and do a salvage, whether it is salvage from an inflatable to a malleable, uh, in order to hold the space. I didn't touch on the uh, cast, uh, the carry-on cast, but that's also very important, it's, it's, but it's not available to most people, so I stuck to the basic things that you guys are gonna see. Okay, so, and in my motto in my office is, you know, size matters, and the bigger ones get the more push, so I always work on trying to maintain the size of the penis during the penile process of surgery. Okay, guys. That, that was wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Valenzuela. Wonderful, comprehensive, and, uh, you know, concise review of a very big topic. Um, so I have some questions here posted in the chat yeah. that I'll pose to you. Do you have any special considerations for men who perform CIC and need a prosthesis? The only thing is I, I, we always get a culture. We want to make sure that the culture is negative. And if they are positive, we treat them accordingly and we keep them on the antibiotic and I usually keep them, first of all, I put them on suppression therapy and then I keep them on it for about a month, believe it or not, because these guys are still doing CIC after the prosthesis is in. Um, so I make sure that they're on antibiotics. I keep them post-op for a month on their suppression therapy, but I still use the same protocol that I use for, for my regular prosthesis. So I still get Bancoin, Genta, Intra-op, and they also, uh, I use the irrigation. I am very, very careful, and I try to do that case as quickly as possible. Um, I know try doing a submuscular placement of the reservoir is also helpful, only because you want to be in and out of that case as quickly as possible, and depends on, on the reason for the neurogenic bladder or for a bladder obstruction. Um, you really want to try not to violate the, the retropubic space if you don't have to. And another question, how do you manage the Foley catheter intra-op and post-op? Uh, for most of my patients, I've now began doing even the scrotal cases, the virgin scrotal cases without a catheter. So we, we tried not to use a Foley catheter. Uh, post-operative, if we do use a Foley catheter, we only use it in the scrotal cases and it comes out before the patient wakes up. So my patients don't go home with a catheter. Uh, they, they don't leave the operating room with a catheter. 
you spoke about the importance of having a dedicated team. Um, do you have that at Mount Sinai, like a dedicated team of nurses? And how do you manage resident rotators in that setting? Yeah, it really is a great thing. You're always going to have a variable, but at uh, I'm at Morningside and we do have a dedicated team. Um, I get usually the same scrub person. If not, then I get one that's already been trained by my scrub tech so that they always know exactly what it is to expect. I, I very rarely do have a new person in the room unless they're, they're there to be trained. So anyone who's going to work with me is first trained by the person who is my, de my dedicated scrub nurse or my circulating nurse. So I, yeah, I do have a dedicated team. And at the Allen at Columbia, I also had a dedicated team. And I, like I said, that you that makes a huge difference. Okay, great. I think um, there are no further questions.